some of your cactus and venue and chapel are wondering, what are they doing over here in the Shea Worship Center? Uh, we're having fun, right? And uh, it's been a good day. And, and now I'm about ready to pop all of our, our fun bubbles because we're going to talk about death. But why don't we personalize it? Let's talk about your death. Uh, you're going to like today, really, because in all seriousness, if you, even if you are dealing with somebody uh, in your life that is on death's door, like I have been uh, throughout all month of December with my mom, or maybe it's very serious for you, or maybe even your own life, uh, we're going to take a look today in this series on fear, what the Bible says about death. So honest, honest gang, what I'm going to share with you today is not what Jamie Rasmussen thinks about death. You're not watching Dr. Phil or Oprah or reading a New York Times bestseller book. You're in church, and this is Scottsdale Bible Church, and our goal is to talk about what God says as best we can discern about uh, the subjects before us. And today in this series on fear, we're talking about death. It will not be as ominous as you think. What the Bible says uh, for many of us is what it calls good news when it comes to this topic. So uh, you'll see as we go along. Let's bow right now and pray, and then we'll dive right in. Father, I do thank you for your word today. I thank you that I don't have to stand up here and somehow give these dear people uh, my opinion on certain subjects, because Lord, we know that they very well might be wrong. But Lord, what we've done for 55 years as a church, 2,000 years as Christian churches, is stand up and talk about your word and try to best understand by the power of your spirit what your word says. So that's my prayer, God, that as we um, open up your book, that the things that we talk about would collate with what your truth says. And Lord, that anything that I say that's not in line with your word, may it fall on deaf ears, I pray. In Jesus' name, and we all say together, amen. Well, I think we can all agree that hands down, universal to everybody, and even for many people, the most scary of all fears is the fear of death. Every culture known to humankind has had to deal with this fear. Every religion ever made, every worldview ever conceived has had to answer the question about death. If you don't, then you don't really have a workable worldview or religion. Uh, th these are the three, if you will, written rules or questions that a worldview has to answer. Why are we here? What is our purpose for being here? And then where are we going? Uh, in this life and even after this life. And it's this third question that we want to pose today and, and answer today. And it's fascinating in trying to help its adherents come to grips with death and to help them deal with the fear. Most religions and worldviews have attempted to give some type of answer in thousands of years of study and inquiry into this idea of where are we going and what happens at death. So if you're familiar with certain forms of Hinduism or Buddhism, you know they believe in reincarnation. The word literally means the reoccupying of the flesh. And what they posit is that when you die, if you did not reach this side uh, in your life, or while you're in this life, if you did not reach a form of enlightenment, then you will be reoccupied in another body for another go-around. 
So life depends on your thoughts and your actions. And if they did not reach a point of enlightenment, then you're reincarnated. And that that cycle goes on and on and on and on until finally you reach enlightenment and are absorbed into the consciousness of God. That's the Hindu explanation of death. And then you have Islam, which unlike Eastern religions, teaches that we only get one go around in this life. And depending on how moral and righteous you are, according to the Quran, this is my Bible, but they have a holy book too, you will either end up in paradise with Allah or in hell with the angels of death to stay there permanently or only for a while, depending on your level of unrighteousness. That's what Islam says about death. And then, as we all know, it's not even just religions that talk about death. Most worldviews and philosophies have to contend with death. And so this one was fascinating to me. Years ago, when I was doing an in-depth study on what people are saying about death, I ran across a magazine that is now defunct, but for over a decade, it was a, a, a somewhat popular online magazine that I would read regularly for the title alone. The magazine was called Positive Atheism. Positive Atheism. And again, the title caught me because I, those are two words I don't usually put together. How about you? And the editor of this, Cliff Walker, who ironically has since died, um, would write regularly about the benefits of atheism. And in one particular article that he wrote over a decade ago, uh, it was an article on what the atheist view of the afterlife is. Listen to what he says. He says, all we know is this, the conscious aware self is established by the structures and processes of the nervous system. If those structures become destroyed and those processes cease, there's nothing left to establish the conscious aware self and we become once more like we were before we were born, non-existent. Now gang, this is probably the most concise cogent, if you will, within their worldview, explanation of the atheist view of death that I have ever read. It's very honest. And Cliff Walker actually went on in this article to talk about the fact of the fact that you don't need to worry about any of this because you weren't aware of your existence before you were born and you won't be aware of your existence after you die. So you will be none the wiser. Add it all up, folks. Death has been around, obviously, for a very, very long time. And so have all the different attempted answers to what happens after we die. All the major world religions have had to contend with it, and even many naturalistic, humanistic philosophies have had to contend with it. But here's the question that I want you and I to wrestle with right now, because it's the $10 question today. And that is, do any of these explanations of death or any of the ones that you have heard over the years really take the bite out of death for you? But that's what you need to be wrestling with right now. Do any of the explanations of death that you have heard over the years really take the edge off the fear that most of us have when we think of our own death? <laughs> Like how Mark Twain once said it, he said, I'm really not all that afraid of dying, I just don't want to be there when it happens. <laughs> and many of us tend to agree with that. As long as we keep it abstract and up here, then we're copacetic with it. But as soon as it becomes personal, that fear sets in. And the question that we have to ask or put before any claim about death 
is does it really work for us? Francis Schaeffer was one of the better philosophers and theologians of the last century, and Schaeffer once said this. He said that any worldview that you evaluate, you should evaluate through two filters, a rational filter and a livability filter. In other words, whenever you're confronted with any truth claim, you should ask yourself, does it make sense to my thinking mind, and is it something that I can truly live out and find peace, hope, and meaning within? So there's an intellectual component to anything that we evaluate this side of heaven, and there's a pragmatic component as well. Does it work for our lives? And here's what we want to do today. We want to take a look at what the Bible says about death. And I want you to be the judge here today. I want you to ask yourself, does this make sense for my life? Does it seem to make sense given what I've experienced and know of reality? And will it work for me? Would the truth we're going to look at today actually take the edge off of the fear that I might have when I think about death? Now, to do this, I want to take a look at just one passage in detail today, and it's found in the New Testament book of Hebrews, specifically Hebrews chapter 9, verse 27, and we're going to read through chapter 10, verse 2. It's only a few verses, but I'm going to warn you, this is probably the most hard-hitting, direct, candid, concise, and clear biblical statement on death that I have ever read. And, and, and it's going to help many of us here today. And so follow along as I read Hebrews 9, verse 27. It says, just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face judgment, so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. And he will appear a second time, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. The law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. For this reason, it can never, by the same sacrifices repeated endlessly year after year, make perfect those who draw near to worship. If it could, would they not have stopped being offered? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all and would no longer have felt guilty for their sins. Now, there's a lot of theology being put forth here, but when you look closely at this passage, you're going to notice a very clear progression that's being laid out here, a fourfold progression of what happens when we die. It's a presentation, if you will, that the author is giving us here, fourfold, that builds one upon the other of kind of the linear progression that we're all going to go through as our bodies someday stop working. And notice the first two legs in this progression. It tells us that every one of us are going to go from life to death. It says in verse 27, right off the start here, it says, just as man or humankind is destined to die once. And so don't miss this, gang. One of the first things the Bible makes clear in its discussion on death is that every one of us someday are going to die. Our bodies will stop working, our hearts will stop beating, our lungs will stop breathing, our blood will stop flowing, and our neurons will stop firing. And the reason, well, not the reason, what I need you to notice is the word the Bible uses here is a very potent and powerful word, pregnant with meaning. It says that all of us are destined to die. That's a fascinating word in the original Greek language that the Bible was written. And the word literally means to be reserved, 
to be appointed or to lay up something. So it's like a reservation that you make at a restaurant or an appointment that you make with somebody or a layaway plan that you used to be able to do at Kmart or Walmart. I don't know if they do that anymore. But unlike a reservation that you can break or an appointment you can skip or a layaway plan that you could get out of and lose your deposit on, this is a reservation that you can't cancel. It's an appointment you can't skip and it's a layaway plan that you can't get out of. This word carries with it a sense of a divine appointment. The fact that God is in control of this world and he has declared that everybody, every one of us are destined to die. And so here's the point. Uh, People who cryogenically freeze themselves upon death and hopes that someday they can be unfrozen and live forever, if we can ever find a way to do that, are kidding themselves. That's not going to happen according to God. That people who believe that old time myth that we're going to find the fountain of youth that they write about in some mythologies, it is what it is. It's a myth. It's not going to happen. And Howard Hughes, who spent all that money on a personal physician to try to prevent his impending death, it didn't work. Even Howard Hughes died. And think about this rationally with me, because it's, it's hard in our modern era, given where we are in this realm of history. See, what's happened in the last 100 years is that we've been able to extend life rather significantly, and we've been able to add a quality of life that many of you are experiencing right now. And this is a very, very good thing, but, but here's how you have to, to, to posture this. Increasing life expectancy from an average of 50 to an average of 78 years over 100 years of never-before-seen research is a long way from eternal living. Amen? It is. I mean, what we've been able to do in the last 100 years in the western half of the world is unprecedented. We have been able to extend life an average of 28 years with the best research this world has ever seen. But in the grand scheme of things, that's not a very long time. And the reality is, is that we're all going to still eventually die. And I know we don't want to think about it. I know that it seems kind of ominous and morbid for some of us, but it's the way it is. It's a reality that we have to contend with because God has declared that. I can remember about 14, 15 years ago when I was much younger, somebody bringing this home to me. It was kind of a humorous moment. I was with one of my dear friends back in Chagrin Falls where I'm from, a fellow pastor who was battling uh, a brutal cancer. And the cancer was uh, spreading all over his body and and a guy had a great sense of humor. And, and one day we were meeting for breakfast and he had just gotten done with a bunch of tests. And I said to Doug, we were very, very close, so I could ask him this. I said, well, just level with me, Doug. Are you dying? he looked at me and said, yep. He said, but don't worry, so are you. (laughs) That's a good answer if you ask me. And we we all knew what he meant. He was going to go first most likely, but my day was coming as well. I've said this to you before. Billy Graham nailed it. He said that death is the most democratic experience in life because we're all going to get a chance to participate. And he's right. And Billy Graham's going to be 100 this year if he lives long enough. But even someday Billy Graham is going to die. Life 
gives way to death. But here's the good news, and that is that God has a plan in all of this, and quite frankly, this is what even some Christians don't get, it's a much better plan than staying here, God's plan is. And this brings us then to the third building block in this progression laid out here of what happens when we die, and that is that life yields death, and death yields judgment. Look at what the Bible says. It says, and after that, meaning after we die, we face judgment. Now, let's be really honest about this. When it says after that, in the original Greek, it's an issue of consequence. Meaning, as far as our conscious minds go, when we die, the next thing we're going to experience is the judgment seat of Christ, what the Bible calls the great white throne. Some argue there might be a soul sleep period between that. Martin Luther, the great reformer, argued that. But whether that happens or not, we don't know. As far as we experience, the Bible says, absent from the body, present with the Lord, we're going to face the judgment seat. Now, I want you all to listen very closely at this point because there's been a lot of confusion and misunderstanding about this issue of judgment. And to be quite frank with you, Christians haven't helped the cause because Christians can be very judgmental, very harsh. I know most of you probably haven't seen that in your fellow Christian, but just go with me on that. They can be like that at times. And so this has left people with a rather sour taste of this word judgment. In fact, when most people think of judgment, they tend to think, tell me if this isn't true, of some kind of harsh, unfair, arbitrary, opinionated, one-sided type of judgment. They think of Timothy Robbins and the Shawshank Redemption, bad judgment. They think of Harrison Ford and the fugitive who was under a bad judgment. Or they think of, uh, of, of Reuben Hurricane Carter or Nelson Mandela, real-life characters who got the raw end of the deal in our judicial system, bad judgment. And people think of judgment that way. And so when we hear about the Bible talk about judgment, we're not prepared to think about it the way God wants us to. But here's what you need to know about what the Bible says about after we die. And that is that the kind of judgment we're going to fall under, are you ready for this? Is a totally fair judgment based on how we lived our lives. And there's no backroom deals going on. There's no unfair judicial proceedings. And there's no judge who doesn't have all the facts. Because the judge is God and he knows everything. And check this out, because this is what so many people in our world and even in the church don't get. And this blows my mind every time I, I, I think about it, but we have to contend with this because it's what the Bible says. This is not going to be a judgment based on works. Most people think that when they die and if they believe they're going to appear before God, that God is going to weigh out all the good things that they did and then all the bad things that they did. And if the bad things weigh less than the good things, then they're okay. And if the bad things don't weigh better than the good things, then they're in trouble. And they think that's how God is going to judge them. Here's the problem with that way of thinking. And you got to laugh at this a little bit. God knows you're going to fail that test. I mean, he knows that if he was to weigh out compared to his perfect standard, the content of your moral life, you would be found wanting. He knows that. 
And again, I, I don't mean to insult some of you. You know, uh, me and uh, Neil and one of our security guys are sitting in my office, which overlooks the parking lot over here on the way in. And we were watching a lot of you walk in and you know, I can picture cactus as well. And, and, uh, and, and I commented to one of the security guys, I said, my Scottsdale people look so nice, don't they? I mean, y'all are dressed so nice and you're driving nice cars and all that. And then I said to Ken, I said, you know what? None of them fool me. I know these people and they're just as sinful as people who live in West Virginia, amen? They're just as sinful as people who live in my hometown of Chagrin Falls. You're just as sinful as LA, Atlanta, New York, Bogota, Okinawa. You just dress nicer. You drive nicer cars. You look a little bit different maybe, but God's not fooled by that. He knows your heart. He knows the things that you've done. He knows what you're gonna do. He knows those of you who are gonna lose it before you leave the parking lot today. <laughs> and God says that if we were to just add up your morality, none of you would make it in. So that's not what this judgment is gonna be about or none of us would get into heaven, no. It's a judgment based on something much more profound, much more meaningful. You ready for this? It's a judgment based on whether or not we have chosen this side of eternity to come to God in personal relationship with his son or through his son, Jesus Christ. Don't miss this, gang. The Bible is very clear on this. It's a judgment on whether or not we have made a choice because we can all do that. A choice to come to him to believe in him, to trust in him. It's a hard issue as he has revealed himself in Jesus Christ. That's what this judgment is gonna be about. If you don't believe me, look back at the passage before us today. It confused some of you earlier, but now you're gonna get it. The pieces will fall into place. You got confused between verses 27 and 28 because it seemed to switch gears to not be talking about death anymore. It says, just as man is destined to die once and after that to face judgment. And then it says, and so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. Pause right there. You're like, well, what's that have to do with it? Now you see it has everything to do with it because it's got you focused on this judgment seat. And as we're gonna see in a second here, it's gonna tell you that the law, your morality is not enough to deal with the judgment seat because you would fail and fall short. So what's God's plan B? Jesus. He sent Jesus to be your sin bearer, to take your sin upon himself. Why? It's very clear. To take away the sins of many people, meaning people that believe and trust in him. And he's going to come again a second time, but this time not to bear sin because he's already done that, but to bring full salvation to you and I who are waiting for him. And then it tells us the logic of why good works can't do it and, and sacrifices and all the things we try to do to please God. It says the law is only a shadow of the good things that are coming, not the realities themselves. If this law could take away sin, would they not have stopped being offered these sacrifices? For the worshipers would have been cleansed once for all, like Jesus came to do. We'd no longer feel guilty for their sins. See, the logic here is impeccable. Schaefer is right. We have to rationally think about this. The reason that the judgment mentioned earlier cannot be based on works, as we've seen, is that morality and the law are powerless to get us through that judgment. We need outside help. And only Jesus can give us that outside help. 
I love how one guy put it years ago. This was life-giving for me. He, he just distilled it down to this level. He said, there's only two people that get into heaven, perfect people and forgiven people. <laughs> and again, I don't mean to insult many of you, but when I look out here and when I envision cactus and venue and chapel and those of you watching online, here's what I do know. I'm not looking at any perfect people, amen? If I followed you around for 24 hours and I took a close look at your thoughts, your emotions, your actions, I would find some things that fall short of perfection, short of God's standard. And I wouldn't judge you for it. You know why? Because I know my own life. And so perfect people could get into heaven because they would meet God's standard, his holiness. But the reality is, due to the fall, none of us are perfect. So the only option we have is somehow for God to take mercy on us, to forgive us, to make that judgment not seem so ominous. And, and, and though I don't know this for a fact, but this is how it makes sense to me, I, I think what's gonna happen for those who believe in Jesus is that when we get to the judgment seat, God, he might not ask us, but the, the issue before the judgment seat is gonna be, why should I let you into heaven? And if any of us dare say, we see God, I went to church every week, you know, and I wasn't really as bad as my neighbor and, and, and that Uncle Tim, and he was a really bad guy and I was better than him. And, and you know, I tied 10% on the growth. God's gonna say, stop. That, 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 that stuff is good. And I'm glad you did all of that. And it showed your obedience and it helped people on earth, but, but that's not enough. He's gonna look to his son. He's gonna say, your, my son is here right now pleading your case. The Bible does say that. And because of his shed blood for you, because of his sacrifice for you, enter into your rest. See, that's what the Bible makes really clear, gang, is that we need outside help. Many human beings are too prideful to receive that to their own detriment, but you and I are smarter than that. We realize that as successful as we have been, as good as we might have been comparatively to those around us, we don't measure up to God. My friend Tom Schrader says it best. He says, the problem with most people is that our view of God does not ascend high enough and our view of ourselves does not descend low enough. And we think the gap between us and God is small. The gap is big. And without God's help, without his son Christ, we are in massive trouble. But with Christ, this is what the gospel is, gang. With Christ, you're gonna pass the judgment of God because he has already forgiven you and his love has penetrated your heart and mind. And then and only then will you enter into the fourth part of this progression and that is that you will go from life to death to judgment and into eternal life with God. As we've already established through the teachings of Hebrews 9 and 10 here, now listen closely, it's either eternal life with God for those who decide to not trust in their anemic morality, but rather trust in God's provision through Jesus, or it's eternal life without God for those who decide to not trust in God's provision, but rather trust in themselves. See, here's one of the beautiful things about God's creation. I know this feels heavy for some of you, but it really is a beautiful thing. Um, <laughs> God created us to be, I think best way to say it would be tripartite in our being, meaning that we're made of body, soul, and spirit. And that spiritual part of you 
is non-material. It's your soul. It's the, the deepest part of you that's in the image of God. It's the breath of God from Genesis 2 that was breathed in us, that made us living beings. And the Bible makes a huge distinction, and this is very life-giving for you and I, between our body and our soul or spirit. The body was made to be temporary. The soul, watch this, was made to be eternal. And every one of you has a soul. Every one of you has a spiritual part of your being. And the Bible's really clear that your body over what? It used to be 50 years, but now it's 78, is gonna degrade over time, and it's gonna start to go down hill. And I look out here today, and again, I vision our other campuses and venues, and, and all I see is those of you who in the last 10 years, as I've gotten to know you, are getting older and older and older and older. And some of you look better than others. Some of you are saying, well, that's a pot calling the kettle black. I get it. I mean, some of us look better than others as we get older. But we all have one thing in common, and that's that we are getting older. Even if you're a young guy here, you're still getting older. And someday your body's going to stop. But watch this. Your soul is going to go on. And for those of you who go on through a choice you made this side of heaven in Jesus you will go on to eternal life with God. And so going back to the original issue of fear when it comes to death, let's not miss what this means for us. When the New Testament writers first got a hold of this truth that we're looking at here today, you know what they labeled it? It's all over this book. They called it the good news. If they had a word for great back then, I'm not sure they did in the Greek, they would have called it the great news. The good news means this is the greatest life-changing news that has ever hit humankind. That this world is not all there is. That God is real and that he has a plan in the midst of all the muck and the mire that this world is about and all the crud that we have to deal with that Scottsdale tries so hard to sanitize and insulate itself from. But you can't do it at the end of the day. Follow me to Mayo one day for a hospital visit. You'll see the other side. You can't get away from it. And, and the New Testament writer said, but there's great news in the midst of all of this. And that is that there is another world that makes this world look like what it is, a dump, a fallen world. And that is eternal life. And for those who choose to have their sins forgiven, who choose Jesus, they have great hope and comfort when their time comes to die. And don't get me wrong, gang, I'm not trying to say, you know me better than this, that death still is not scary and that it's not difficult and that we do not grieve. Of course we do. I sat there and cried in my parents' basement in December at the loss of my mom. I can still hear her voice in my head, but I'll never hear her voice again this side of heaven. And that's a very difficult thing to deal with. Grief is a hole in our soul that many of you have gone through that leaves an emptiness that, that is seemingly unfillable. And for some of you, grief is very, very difficult. And I get that. I understand that. But that's why the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 4 that we grieve, just not like the rest of people who have no hope. Because we got hope on our side we have the comfort of eternal life. And all I know is that those who have believed this, talk about livable, have been able to face death with a level of courage and comfort that I've never seen anywhere else. I, I once dealt with, back in Detroit when I was pastoring there, I dealt with a 29-year-old AIDS victim named Tad. 
who had made a mess of his life, got AIDS, then came back to God and repented of those things, and he faced death with joy that I'd never seen in almost anybody since. Or how about Brian, a 40-year-old border guard in Detroit who got cancer and was going to leave his kids way too early. We never thought you'd leave your kids that early, and he faced death with so much courage and even anticipation of what comes next. Or how about Tina, a 39-year-old single mom in Cleveland who I got to walk through her cancer, and it was very difficult, leaving an eight-year-old son, and yet in tears as she was passing into glory. She was also anticipating what was going to come next. See, this isn't pipe dream stuff. This isn't wishful thinking. Freud was wrong. This is not some adolescent wish that all of us just have in our souls. This is something God has put in us. This ability for imagination and to imagine what heaven is going to be like and allow it to comfort our souls. I did a little study this week that was kind of fun. I've done it a thousand times before, but I decided just to renew my mind on what heaven's going to be like. There's a lot that we don't know about heaven, but let me give you a quick primer on what you can anticipate if you're a follower of Christ. First thing the Bible says is that heaven is an actual place. Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you. And then he uses that word twice more. In the original Greek, that word place literally means place. It means that there's an actual place that heaven is. Now, is it in this dimension? Is it in this universe? Is it in another realm? I have the foggiest idea. Probably not in this realm. If those of you who think philosophically, God created time, God created space, God created material, this material world, so he exists outside of that. So very well, eternity is probably outside of that, but it's still a place. And the body says, or the Bible says that you're going to have a body in heaven, a resurrection body. So it's, a, it's an actual place. And it's a place, secondly, where God and Jesus dwell. It says in the Bible that our citizenship is in heaven where Jesus dwells right now. And then the Bible says, thirdly, that heaven is a place where God dwells that Christians go to when they die. 2 Corinthians 5, 8, absent from the body, present with the Lord. And then we get into the descriptions of heaven. You ready for this? In John 14, it's called a house. In Hebrews 11, it's called a country, a better country, even a city. In Luke 23, Jesus calls it a paradise. Some of these might be metaphors we don't know, but let me put it this way. None of them sound negative. Do they sound negative to you? And then you get down to brass tacks, the real tactics of it all in Revelation 21 and 22. It tells us that in heaven, we will be in the full presence of God, that we will see him face to face. As 1 Corinthians 13, 12 says, now we know in part, but then we shall know fully, even as we are fully known. So that's why I've said most likely, all of our questions will be answered in heaven. In heaven, there'll be no more tears, no more death, no more crying, no more pain, no more mourning. So I've joked for years, I, I'm pretty convinced there's gonna be no health clubs in heaven because you're gonna have a perfect body, a perfect soul, and all that pain and striving that you go through this side of heaven that some of you in a sick way enjoy, that's not gonna be there in heaven. So mild disappointment for some of you. All things will be made new, no shame, no deceit, it's pure. And I love this one, there's full satiation in heaven. 
It says that in heaven, there'll be living water that we drink from in which we will never thirst again. And again, it's probably metaphorical. But I, my wife, my dear wife, Kim, who's here right now, was on the phone Saturday morning with one of her friends that I was listening in. Sorry, honey, we have a small house. And I was listening in, and as she was talking with this friend, this friend in a very tender way was describing, and many of you can relate how, you know, in her quiet time that morning, she was thirsting for more and more of God. She just wants to know more about him and experience more of him, but, but, but just seemed to can't this side of heaven and leaves her soul thirsty. My mentor, Larry Crabb, actually romanticizes that. He says, could it be that this side of heaven, the thirst is the experience, that God wants us in that place? As the psalmist says, as the deer panteth for the water, so my soul longeth after thee. And then for those of you who experience that, that's a good thing. But here's my point. In heaven, that's not going to be that way anymore. You're not going to live this dissatisfied life. Some people don't like this. It says in heaven there'll be no more darkness. Some of you go, well, how am I going to sleep? Don't think like that. I mean, that's, that's not the point. It says that there's no darkness because God will be our light. Doesn't that sound good? And then I don't even know how to make sense of this. And it's for another sermon. Some of you really get, get you know, you, you love this and you talk to me about it and ask me what it means. I don't know. It says that Christians will reign in heaven. Not R-A-I-N, but R-E-I-G-N. We're going to rule in heaven, even make judgments. And, and, and again, it doesn't say much more than that. All it tells us, and this is what you need to take from it, is that there's going to be activity in heaven. Once in a while, a Christian will come to me and go, man, heaven sounds kind of boring. I'm like, don't say that to God. You can say that to me, but, but heaven's not going to be that way. I, I, I don't know all of what heaven will be, but it's not going to be boring, amen? It's going to be in the full presence of God. And as I say at many funerals, when I do them, I say, here's the great hope we have. Our worst day in heaven is a lot better than our best day here. That's how great heaven will be. And again, when I understand this, when I allow my soul to think about this and even salivate after it, gang, talk about livable, to face death this way. It doesn't mean that I'll never have doubts and never have fears, but it does take the edge off. That's what I want you to think about for you, is when you allow your brain and your heart and then your actions to, to follow suit with what the, what the Bible says here, it really does take the edge off the fear that many of us have of death, at least in our more rational and sane and centered moments. I want to close today by sharing one of our ever popular my stories with you right now, a video my story. This one has a backstory you need to know about because it's pretty phenomenal. About two or three years ago, I was sitting in my office and my secretary, Kathy, buzzed me. It was one of those rare moments where I wasn't doing anything. Call it meditating. I wasn't doing anything. And uh, <laughs> Kathy knew it. And so she buzzed me and said, hey, there's a guy on the phone that wants to talk to you. I think you better take this. And so I pick up the phone and I say, hey, this is Jamie. And I'll, I'll never forget it. I can hear his voice in my head. He said, is this Rasmussen? And I said, yes. And he goes, this is Chuck Nadler. I just want you to know you're doing a good job. And I said, well, thank you, Chuck. I appreciate that. Why would you say that? He said, well, I'm a snowbird from Wisconsin and I've been in the same church up there for 60 years. And it's only been in the last few years that I've really gotten it. I really get it and I understand. And you've been a part of that and you're, you're just doing a good job. And I want you to know that. I said, I kind of like this guy. I think he's discerning. And I, I thought, you know, 
So I, I wanted to know more. So I said, well, Chuck, I'd love to meet you sometime. And, and since then, Chuck has been in my office a few times. And, 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 and each time, it's been kind of a, a fun time. He, he sounded on the phone like he was about six foot eight, like this rough and tough guy. First time he came in my office, he's this diminutive little guy. I mean, he's like smaller than me, which says something. He's thinner than me that doesn't say something. But he's, he's, he's just a small guy. And he's old. He, he's like in his late 80s at that time. And, uh, and, and every time Chuck was in my office, it was just life-giving to me because he, he'd tell me since he found Christ, or as I like to say, since Christ found him so late in life, he was just on fire for spiritual things. And he just had such a, a wonderful vernacular in the way he would say things. And, and again, I don't mean to label people, but you know, sometimes, uh, let's just be frank, many times when you get with elderly people, they like to, to talk a lot. And, uh, and that's good because they, they have a lot to say and life experiences. And, and Chuck loved to do that, but I was never bored at all with him. He'd sit in my office and he'd talk and talk. He'd call me on the phone and, 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 and I just loved his words. So one time he was in my office and I said, hey, Chuck, do you mind if I turn the camera on? I don't have a camera in my office, but we have camera guys. And I said, I'd love to just capture this stuff for posterity's sake. We might make a my story out of it someday. And he knew what they were because he came here a few months out of the year. And, uh, and he said, no, let's do it. And so we sat in my office, he and his wife, Nancy, and, and we chatted for about an hour. And I want to show you just three minutes of this hour-long conversation. We'll call this the best of Chuck because he would talk about his experiences with faith and, and most importantly, about eternity in a way that moved me, and I think it might move you. So here's Chuck. Now, I'm 90 years old. You can't believe the life I had. High school athletics. I volunteered for the Air Force in World War II. Went to college after all of that. Had a business career. The life that I have lived is unbelievable. I've been blessed. We were in this church for 60 years. We still are. And in 2001, I put air conditioning in the church. Now it's a 175-year-old church. And I did all these things, but I honestly didn't do it as a Christian. I did it because I was good at it. And my business background helped me a great deal. I didn't know then what I know now. John 3.16, if you believe, eternity is there. That's the tip of the iceberg. Because if you read 20 and 21 in, in the last book of the Bible, Christ is going to come down. And there's going to be no wars. You're not going to see on, on television what you see now. There's going to be no unhappiness, no, no pain, no nothing. Chuck Hanadler is not going to have a defibrillator or uh, football knees to be in that kingdom. But you made a comment once that 80% of the people aren't going to church in Scottsdale. I can understand why. It's a beautiful country to live in if you've got money and you've got a big car and you've got all the things that Scottsdale has to offer. You don't need any help to enjoy life. When the lights go off at night and you're sitting somewhere in your home and nothing's bothering you, give some thought to maybe smelling that sizzle that Christ is offering you for that last day when your eye closes 
and that beautiful thing is made available to him. This beautiful life that I have, that almost like golden boy, you know, everything went my way. And to tell somebody in the church that maybe isn't thinking that way, yeah. if I could tell them, try to be like me, not me, but how I think, I'd be happy. It's really worthwhile because eternity is going to be beautiful. Yeah, amen. This past fall, a few months ago, Chuck died and passed into eternity. One of the reasons that I showed you that video is because there's many reasons I like it, but it really is a voice, if you've ever had one, from the beyond. Chuck longed for eternity. You heard him say that. Eternity is going to be beautiful. And Revelation 21 and 22, that many of you might want to read this week, is going to, you know, sets the picture for what eternity is going to be like. And Chuck longed for that in his, in his old age. And he was ready to go. I'm sure Nancy misses him terribly. We've sent condolences and flowers because they're back uh, in the Midwest. But Chuck had a change in his life in his latter years, and it had everything to do, don't miss this, with his view of death. And one of the things that I love about Chuck's story, I don't know if you caught this or not, is that you know most of the my stories that we tell here follow a similar pattern. And it's not a bad pattern. It's a pattern that we all experience in life, and that is that life is going along well, then a major catastrophe or problem hits, and then Jesus enters in, and he does his work in our lives. And we tell a lot of our my stories that way because that's the way many of us experience life. One of the things I love about Chuck's story is that that wasn't his experience at all. I mean, he never really had any major problems. As he said, I had a, a beautiful, wonderful, glorious life. And yet, when he was honest with himself, it was a rather unsatisfying life in certain ways on a spiritual level. When he had the, the lights go out and the darkness come at the end of the day, that sizzle, I like how he says that, that sizzle wasn't there until Christ came into his life. And when Christ came into his life, when he made the choice to receive Christ, I got to tell you, this man's life was changed. He, he called me one time and I said, hey, Chuck, what you been reading? He goes, I'm reading Wayne Grudem's Systematic Theology. I thought, wow, you're really going for gold, aren't you? I mean, that thing is like 900 pages and no pictures. I mean, that thing's huge. <laughs> I haven't even read all of it. And, and Chuck loved it. He could not get enough of God and what God has to offer. Here's what I want to do as you learn from Chuck, as we learn from the Bible today. We're going to go to our elder fund offering here in a minute, but I'm going to pray for us first. And... Uh, as I do, I'm going to pray two things for all of you. In Cactus Venue Chapel and those of you online, please dial into this as well. I'm going to pray for those of you who are believers, who've already made the decision to follow Christ, that, that today marks a day of increased comfort, hope, joy, and a little bit of the edge taken off of any fear you might have of death. And then for those of you who are not yet believers, I'm hoping today is the day. I'm hoping that today as you have factored in what Schaefer talked about, rational and livable, that you see that what the Bible says about death is really for you, and it's time for you to believe. So let's pray right now. Father, I thank you for the great hope and comfort your word gives. I pray we've done justice to it here today in rightly dividing the word of truth, and I pray, God, that for those who are believers in your son Jesus here today, 
that they would walk out of here in a few minutes with hope and comfort, confidence and security residing in their souls. I pray that they know no matter where they are in life right now, young or old, that when their body stops working, their soul goes on to be with you. And that, Lord, though there might be some fear in that process, they need not panic because you have called them and you have grabbed them and eternity is theirs with you. May that comfort reside in their souls. I pray, God, as well for those of us here today that have might not come yet to a point of belief that maybe today is the day we're ready to believe. Maybe it makes sense finally for us and that we're done with the things of this world and ready, as Chuck has taught us, to experience that sizzle that only Christ can bring. And Lord, right where they sit right now, they confess that they can't get to heaven on their good works, it's just not enough, and that they realize the atonement for Christ is sufficient for them. And they believe right where they sit, they trust in Christ, and they come home to you now. And Father, I pray that as anybody has done that here today, that you would give them confidence that they've crossed over from death to life, from no hope to hope, and Lord, from, from a, a joy that was based on material things to a joy that is now based on eternal things. God, thank you that you love us. Thank you that there's not one of us here today that is beyond the reach of your good news and the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen.